does it feel like when you're down and out in business, but know in your heart that you're only in the middle of your story and that better times lie ahead? Welcome back to the Soul Inspiring Business Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Chafin, Donna Frio. And today we dive deep into the incredible journey of resilience and resourcefulness with my friend and inspiring business leader, Josh McAllen. Josh is the host of the popular podcast, Capital Hacking, CEO of Viva May Hospitality, managing partner of Accountable Equity, and he's a nationally recognized real estate investor with a proven track record for development of exceptional projects and growing world-class operational teams. In today's episode, Josh shares his story, his insatiable curiosity that led him to explore partnerships with developers. And he shares about the time that he lost it all with six kids to feed, faced with adversity, but also filled with his own self-awareness that this was not the end, but just the middle of his story. Discover how Josh's unwavering faith in real estate led him to turn a dilapidated winery in New Jersey into a thriving outdoor wedding venue during the challenging COVID years. And that's not all. He is now on a mission to create exponential wealth building opportunities for families through his quarterly Learn and Grow Investment Summits and his Accountable Equity Community. Join me as we learn from Josh's journey of turning trials into triumphs and unlocking the secrets to building an investor community. Get ready for a soul-inspiring conversation filled with invaluable lessons on resilience, resourcefulness, and the road to untold riches. It all starts now. I'm Kara, and welcome to Soul Inspiring Business. I believe that all of us possess unique gifts and talents that allow us to serve the world and our own growth in the highest possible way. Our lives are an expression of our thoughts, beliefs, and actions. And here, we will explore businesses, thought leaders, and topics designed to inspire, helping propel your own growth so you can live your best and most purposeful life. Welcome to Soul Inspiring Business. I am so excited to welcome my friend, Josh McAllen. So thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. It's great to be here, Kara, and I love that you have the the, the big show here, the real estate show. Uh, I always think of you. As a matter of fact, I follow you on all the Instagrams, and I love seeing you tour the homes and take care of the clients, and you do a great work. Oh, well, well, thank you so much. It's a mutual admiration for sure, um, because so um, as you just heard, Josh ha- is just incredible. He has... Um, started an incredible investor community called Accountable Equity. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But he and I actually met a few years ago because there was this amazing opportunity, investment opportunity that I, in talking to you, believed in, invested in personally. And then, I, you know, we've been able to follow each other in this um, growth that that you've had. And as an investor, it's been really cool to see. And so, you know, when I was thinking about gosh, you know, what are the best guests that we can bring onto this show and really, you know, share with our listeners? Of course, you were so top of mind because I have so much respect for you, um, not just in what you've done from a business perspective, but also the way your family and, you know, your just values and and so much of that is just, you're just an incredible human. Wow. <laughs> more importantly. Thank so, you so much. Um, so talk us through, um, you know, you're, you've developed an incredible investor community, in fact, running investor seminars um, quarterly, I believe, at some of the properties that you have and and um, just really doing so much to help investors and educate and 
bring investors wow. together, right? Um, but talk us through the beginning. So how did this sure. all start for you? Well, it's it's so nice. Uh, by the way, that's an ov- overly flattering introduction. Melanie and I are always honored to have you around at, at our events. I think you've only been able to come to one, but I know you've been following us. So we met, um, my wife and I met about 25, 26, 27 years ago. We've been married 25 years. Uh, we were that family with the 10 children, which is uh, a gift. I'm I'm one of two. So my wife uh, always says, uh, uh, first of all, I thank her because it's way harder to be the mom of 10 kids than it is to be the dad of 10 kids. But but in the business world, we started off one step at a time. You know, in the 90s, in the 90s, we bought a, a small little home in a college town and we learned how to rent out part of it. And that did get the gears going where we saw real estate is a good investment for our family, but also a nice little way to pick up some cash. Fast forward, we we ended up spending time really digging into our careers. Melanie was a teacher for a period of time. I was as well. And then I had this great opportunity and we both jumped on it to live in Europe and run a, a property that was a hotel, but also a study abroad campus. Hmm. And that changed our lives a lot in the early 2000s, really helped us. As a matter of fact, we only lived in the U.S., we would visit the U.S. once a year. And so in four years of living in Europe, we barely came home to America for more than a month. Wow. And it was super cool to get immersed in Austria, which I'm not Austrian, but boy, do I love their culture. It's a it's a sleepy little, sweet little country in the Alps. Oh. And we lived in a village. And that impacted a lot of what we do today. You know, you've seen some of the buildings we do and, and the, the way we invest in resorts. And what we took away from Europe was this connection to nature, this connection to outside, uh, a simpler way of life. Um, now, when we were there in 2000s, early 2000s, that was, remember cell phones back then were like a nice little thing, but they weren't a big deal. They were like a lot of buttons to push to do one text message. You had to hit the six a bunch of seven a bunch of times. So they weren't a big deal. So we still felt like it was like the old world times over in Europe. Now, of course, you know, everybody has iPhones and stuff. But so we got to live. What is Austrian food like? I'm just curious also. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Thank you for asking. I will tell you. So for those of those listening, you'll enjoy this because close your eyes and picture Maria von Trapp singing on the top of a hill that the hills are alive. And then in that little, you know, village, the Salzburg, where she uh, the film of Sound of Music is set. That's not that unlike where we lived. Uh, Salzburg was, we used to go there a lot. And those hills were like what was in our backyard. Of course, hers were a little bigger because she was uh, further uh, to the the deeper part of the Alps. But um, the food, here's what the food is. The classic food, you have Vienna, which is the fancy city, and they have Salzburg and a lot of cities like Salzburg, which are more traditional and kind of like um, classic clothing, like they call it Trachten which mm. is the costumes. By the way, when you get to that part of Europe, like that more villagey part of Europe, they all still wear those costumes. They don't call them costumes. So I was going to were... say, I guess they're not costumes then. They're just- I know, <laughs> but they call it trachten, trachten, oh. which is like a traditional clothing. And oh. uh, they they actually, at least last time I was there 10, 15 years ago, they were still wearing it like on a regular afternoon. You might go to the bar and you'd have two like- senior like farmer you know kind of homeowners 
and they're wearing those button-up shirts with the, the, the jacket with the bones in it, and yeah. it's got little swirlies in the in the lapel or whatever. And you're like, man, that lights right out of the movie, you know, when <laughs> when uh, Colonel von, uh, Captain von Trapp comes down the steps. But so so there's a lot of that old world tradition, and it all goes back to nature. And we had a great time. And so today we have the wonderful privilege, after a bunch of little life incidents, to build beautiful resorts. And we do it with a lot of investors, and we get to enjoy them together. But there's a lot in that story, Kara. Where would you like me to go? Gosh, um, well, there's so many. So I think I'd love for you to tell a little bit more. I know a little bit of this story, but um, when you came back, right, you were working with, um, I believe you started working and doing project management, right? Luxury luxury Luxury. house flipping. Yep. Yeah. So let's get into that because that probably sure. set the stage for a lot of now what you're doing. It does. Partner. Yeah. And forgive me for not telling you the food. You'll know two types oh, yeah. of food. I forgot to tell you the sophisticated Vienna food is the Vienna Sacre Torte, which is a fondant covered chocolate cake with, mm. I think there's a jelly in the middle, which I'm not a big fan, but they love jellies in Austria. But that the richest, darkest chocolate cake. And you're thinking to yourself, ooh, sounds nice. But in Europe, they don't put much sugar in it. And I remember Americans and Europeans with their sweets. It's actually once you go to Europe, especially Austria, and you start to eat their sweets, you do appreciate it more because it has like a a less over-the-top sugar, Hmm. lots of flavor, and it makes you want to drink a coffee or tea, which – there you go. Sorry. That's there Vienna. You go. <laughs> and then you you go to the villages and they sell you the the uh, Wiener schnitzel or even in the city. And a Wiener schnitzel is a meat pound down pretty thin uh, with like a thin bread and then fried. And it's kind of large. And they love uh, with their frites, frites and pomme frites, which is like a French fry. Oh, so that's yeah. like a classic. And then salads are like totally different than our salads. And they, they're, they're, they're a lot like the cold salad you buy uh at a, at, a, at a grocery store, but where there's like mixes in them. All right. Lots of interesting things. I could tell you all about the Leberkuchen. I love it. <laughs> so not the fanciest food, but like hearty farmer food is what I think mm-hmm. of when I think of Austria. Now, when we got back to America, the, the, to, for those following this crazy story, we had a dream. I remember Melanie and I came back. We had been pretty frugal. So we had a little savings, ironically, coming back from Europe with the savings may not have been the best idea. We should have been less frugal. <laughs> but we came back and we're, we had no career left because I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to stay in university work. I said, let's get into land development. And it was, hmm. a, it was a dream on the wall. And uh, actually, I took steps. For those of you who want to figure this out, uh, there's something wise about these steps, thank God, in hindsight. One was I got into lending, and I, I became a broker of, of loans, thinking that that was, first of all, low a lower barrier to entry. You can get in. Uh, tomorrow, somebody will hire you to be a loan broker. Mm-hmm. But you'll start to understand the math of real estate. And maybe that's something we could teach in this, this call a little bit, the difference yeah. between home ownership real estate and business real estate, there is a difference in the way bankers look at it. If you want, I can come back to that. We can do a little masterclass. Yeah, that'd be great. And that's how I got into land development because I figured if I could meet land developers and I knew how to get debt for them, that I would be in the conversation. Well, it didn't exactly go that way. Um, We had a, it was a series of many months meeting one good person first from a referral to to meet, oh, you, you, you have good ideas in real estate. You should go do this. I had been studying real estate as an amateur living in Europe, reading English written 
magazines because that was the boom, right? I lived in mm-hmm. Europe when the early boom of the 2000s went crazy, right? And I felt so frustrated because we owned no real estate and we were every magazine that came back from the US or or even back then internet was okay but it wasn't as important to me it wasn't as common to use every morning so every magazine i was reading the economist and they were all about the housing boom in america and i'm like damn people are picking up equity appreciation just in their sleep right and a year went by and the house cost more and they didn't do anything i'm like man i am missing out <laughs> So then yeah. I get home to America in 2006. I had been reading The Economist, and The Economist kept saying, there's got to be other ways to buy real estate because as this price inflation goes on, uh, it'll make it less affordable. So I don't want to get into all the heady stuff I was doing, but I ended up going to universities when I got back and talked to professors at Wharton. I was writing to NYU's real estate division, and I was trying to concoct a way to sell homes that you didn't have to put the debt on the full building. So this is a long story. But what I was trying to do was, you know how it is, you sold, I think you sold new construction back then. I did. Yeah. It it took like to buy a townhouse, which in the old days, when you and I pre the bubble, we thought townhouses were for affordable. But by the time the 2006 was coming around, a townhouse was four or 500 grand. And the problem with something being four or 500,000 this is a little tidbit. One of the things that drove my research back then, and I, again, I'm researching by reading magazines and, and thinking, was that the affordability index was really down in 2005, 2006. And here's what they meant, the, the research I was reading, that traditionally from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was like one to two and a half years salary of a house equaled the price of a house. Mm, so right. the the family income for two years could buy a house. Now, that's not how it works, but that's how the math was kind of working. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time 2006 was coming around, people making $80,000, two of them is 160, and the houses were like four and 500 for a starter home. So the, the economist was saying, it's really out of kilter. You're, you're, the home value to your income is not keeping up, basically. They're, they're, right. they're falling out of sequence. And there was this question that said, what if you didn't have to pay for the whole house? And so I wrote a whole business plan about what if you partnered with developers and they kept a piece of the equity as much as they could, and they got the appreciation on a portion of the house, and you got the appreciation on the portion of the house, but you got to enjoy it. So yeah. one developer or another, even my Wharton professors and stuff like that, they're like, this is great. How are you going to build this model? I said, well, I'm going to start working with developers and we're going to figure out how to get a capital resource to buy that other 25% of the house. And we're going to let that be owned as an investment for somebody else. Anyway, lots to tell you there. Wow. It was such a great- you could make that argument, I mean, now too, right? With exactly. The way that, yeah. So- um... And my theory was that instead of owning the upside of the house, what if you let somebody else have a piece of the upside? Mm-hmm. Now, what we what we're talking about sounded crazy because it's about families' homes. Turns out two groups actually created something like that. And and for whatever it's worth, um, things like that don't last it through crashes. So I'm not sure it exists anymore, but you could look it up. It was called uh, equity sharing and things like mm. that. But in the meantime, what I was doing was arguing to developers, what if selling that same townhouse for 450000 the incomes could be $70,000 times two is one forty. Now there's more people in the 
region that could have bought that house. And the more people in the region, the more pass-through or success you'll have at the close ratio. And so that's what got me into a bunch of meetings. And so I, I kept meeting developers. Mm-hmm. I've never shared that story on a podcast. I hope I did an okay job, but that was oh, why that. a developer yeah. met me. A developer ends up saying, I like what you're doing. I like your business model. I had written a whole book about it. And they're like, instead of running that, I'm just going to hire you into my family office. And that's how I jumped from developer, 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 meaning conversations, no money, to working for a developer who had a wealthy family office and was building companies. And so he just pulled me into his company. And from that point forward, a lot of things changed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I built houses. It's it's really interesting, too, because I think that um, that story just shows you like the, I love hearing the unfolding, right? So mm-hmm. like to get curious about what do I want to do? Okay. Land development. How do I do that? Well, this is one way. And then just being like focused on, you know, continuing to ask the questions, get in, you know, relationships will propel. I believe relationships are everything in they business. Are. And, you know, so having the more conversations you have, the more relationships that you have, the more clarity you have on kind of also what you want to do, then the right opportunity, when the right opportunities unfold, you're ready. It's like, you know, the universe just guides you in, God guides you in to exactly where you're meant to be. So that's a very uh, cool story. Thanks for sharing. And and just to finish, so that gentleman ended up, you know, not necessarily wanting to do the idea that he originally liked, but he's like, you know what? I like working with people like yourself. Let's collaborate. And and I have a problem. He had a problem at the time. He was really, uh, you know, in the middle of a bunch of construction projects. And so that's the pivot. How did I go from talking about building buildings to building buildings was uh, something we call human capital. All I did was put all we did was put ourselves in the breach. So at that time, you couldn't find contractors in 2005, 2006, right? Everybody with a truck that had a, a ladder hanging off the back, you would probably like wave at them at the Wawa and say, hey, or at, the, or at the store, may I ask you, do you have a business card? Like everybody was booked. Right. And so um, what happened was that the people who were running his projects were so overbooked, they wouldn't come to the projects. So his his theory was a great theory. He said, Josh, you go to that project every day and you stay there until that damn project's done. And when you do that, you learn how to build. You really do. You guys could do it right now. If you have a house, Kara has a house almost finished, actually. And I'm sure if she would have just stood there every day, Kara, it would have yeah. been done a little quicker. <laughs> I'm sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> you see the crazy that goes on. You see that somebody was supposed to show up on Monday. It's now Friday. They still haven't shown up and nobody's called them. And you're right. like, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. That's the home elevator inspector. If they don't come, we're never opening. You know, we're the, It's all the, right. everything creates a domino of timeline problems. But if yeah. you're there and you just diligently follow up. And so that, I built a whole career on building luxury homes by just being there and following up. Mm, wow. Um, yeah, that's so true. Um, and that you learned so much in the building and, you know, (laughs) things like I've, I've been in new construction, right. And so, but now this evolution of it, I've learned even so much more. Mm -hmm. Um, so about the project management side and anyway, um, so let's jump in then to you 
so you've got this background now in building and, um, and so you knew, you know, you started basically you were a project manager, managing yep. all of the, um, production timelines, ordering, I'd imagine like all yep. the things that go with building these really high end luxury homes. And, um, when you say luxury homes, what does that mean? Well, it was 2006, seven, eight until the, the crash and, uh, New Jersey was where we were. And mm -hmm. New Jersey's homes on the water are quite expensive at the time. And of course they are again. Uh, the average home we were building was $5 million and they were speculative flips, Kara. How crazy is that? One home. Wow. And then what, the biggest one was eight and a half, I think we did. And then we had a compound. I got to build multiple homes on the water all in one little private compound for like $15 million. So these wow. were pretty crazy expensive flips. And that was... 15 million, 5 million, 8 million back in 2006. Correct. So obviously way more than that. Yes. In today's yep. value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've got all of that experience and then, then what happens? So you, you see, um, opportunity. So talk us through kind of the next yes. iteration. Honestly, I felt pretty excited. It felt like a dream come true and I uh, loved building it, it. It just absolutely was a dream, but then the recession started. And so from that point, to, to not overdo it, I'm such an honor to be able to share my story. But there was a period of time where my poor wife, I put her through hell. I started a business after the recession started. I left the family office voluntarily, resigned and said, you know, when, we're, when we have work to do, call me. But in the meantime, I bought a franchise business, lost it financially and suffered. We suffered a lot. My wife and I, there's this one magical moment in December 2010 or something like that where I'd spent every dollar of the little tiny IRA we had and every dollar we had. And, and, uh, I, my company was repossessed. It was a truck based franchise business that I thought, uh, that, that I made mistakes with. And, uh, she's like, how could you do this to me? You ruined our lives. You know, like you could, the visceral gut level hurt that she, that I had put her through. Mm. And I remember, remember going, honey, I completely agree with you. I'm so mad at myself too. But I feel like this is the middle of the story. It's the middle. It's the it's that part that it's like, wow, that was a bad idea, you know. And and then we're gonna dig out, honey. And she just, you know, I think she let me get off the hook that day. And uh, I was dead serious. I felt like this is important that this happened. Mm. And from that point, uh, two two great things happened. Real quick, the same family office a year later. Um, I had been doing consulting work for other people after I lost my company and uh, I was making ends meet and we were kind of, we actually decided to move to DC. I had an offer from a private equity backed um, firm to be a chief oh. working officer and we turned it down. We were doing contract work for them. We turned uh -huh. it down because he asked me to come back and join the development company again. Mm -hmm. He thought the recession was over and we took over his hotel. And from that point, he had had a dumpy hotel and we renovated it, brought it to market, and we built a franchise model, we called it, where we were like learning in the the one dumpy hotel we had, we were turning it into a resort. And our theory was he had no way to sell it when it was a dump. So he had no choice but to make it less than a dump. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we figured, why not use this as a way to build a whole company? Instead of just looking at the problem and this is part of our whole life's motto, right? If mm -hmm. we're going to do it, there's going to be a ton of suffering. Let's do it so it has an exponential potential. Mm -hmm. Like fixing up one hotel was awesome, but we did it with a brand name on it. We put a brand, well, our, we created a brand. 
We had a whole prototype thing going on. We're going to buy every dilapidated hotel we can on the Eastern Seaboard and turn them into an Icona Hotel, which was the brand we created together. And uh, it was a a great idea because, anyway, lots of reasons. We became successful after about a year of absolute failure, uh, really humiliating failure for about a year. But then two years, three years later, we were the seventh ranked hotel in America. Wow. Boy, were we successful. Thank the good Lord. And and we ended up buying two more properties real quick. And that that's another thing I learned. That was a commercial real estate difference between buying houses and using debt and commercial buildings using debt. Changed my perspective on how the economy works. And I sh- I'll share that after if you ask. And mm-hmm. then later left that partnership and, and built what we do now. And today we get to do the same level of kind of like exponential um, wealth building for the that family. Now we get to do it for families. And so now we build small private equity funds and investors join us. And it's it's a camaraderie. Um, and I could share hundreds of stories about why we did it that way. But um, in general, we love people. And we think it's exciting to have colleagues and collaborators on the investment side um, while we're doing these cool business things. They get to enjoy them as well. Well, um, so a few of the things that stuck out. Number one, when you went through that really hard time and you had that conversation with your wife, how many kids did you have at that point in time? Six. Six. Oh that's what that's where it gets hairy, right? She's like, You ruined our lives. And I'm, I'm just like, like I know. thinking of the emotional, you know, but but here's the thing, and this is something that I see through gosh, you know, so many entrepreneurs and, and, and people that have been really successful is that everybody has a story like that to some degree. Right. And the key that makes the difference, like what makes the difference between somebody taking that and seeing it as the middle of the story versus somebody that doesn't create anything from that is, you know, is the resiliency that you have. And then, and that you have to, you know, yes, we made some mistakes. So we've made these, you know, failures, but you know what, now we're going to turn these failures. We know we won't do that again. Right. (laughs) And we're going to make something even better. Like, I think it's just a testament to also, I know you and Melanie personally and the beautiful family that you have and the beautiful partnership actually, that I think you have in a a marriage. It's really beautiful to see. Um, and so gosh, that's just, um, you know, I just wanted to mention that and throw that out because it's really it's, special to see you, you know, go through obviously hard times. I mean, not yes. to make light of it, but that you've were believed in each other enough and believed in yourself enough to know that, hey, this is not where the buck stops. You know, I know. I know. And, and isn't it nice when you hit rock bottom? You're like, well, I guess, again, you can stay there. Some people, it, it, and by the way, not every time have I been able to see through these tough times, but. Thankfully, in general, I'm, I'm a, uh, we're able to see through. And Melanie's support is the key. And uh, she'll give it to me, though. Like, I think I even got in trouble yesterday pretty solidly. So, um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, she's such a big supporter. And and we've made mistakes, and but, but we're, we're still going to be supporters. Yeah. And that is, by the way, I thank her for that. She comes from a really great family and a great marriage. Mm-hmm. Not everybody had that. I did not have that. My dad had left early on. So thank God she never thought uh, giving up was an option. Yeah. I probably would have thought those were options coming from a divorced family. <laughs> right. But Melanie was never going to let me go. So uh, uh, she saved my life on that one. Thank God. Love that. Love that. 
Um, so tell us more about what you're, because I think one of the things that I am passionate about helping our listeners and, and, you know, people in general understand are that there's so many different types of investment options and ways to build passive ways to build wealth and really to build passive income because you're not going to work forever, right? You're not. And so how do you invest in things that, um, you know, that's going to pay you money when you don't want to work. Right. Um, and how do you get involved in those things? So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I think the story of Renault is a really cool one to share. Um, you know, but, um, and Renault is one of these investments that you've, you know, were able to really take, as you said, like you, you know, you take something and then you don't just, you think of all the ways that you can leverage and make money for that for now into the future. Right. And how, and more importantly, as you said, the investor being central to that, how do we think of the investor as part of that and really help create passive income, not just for one family, but families and community. Um, Well, it's an honor to be part of stuff like this. So for those of you who are listening and, and uh, to reset the table, some of the things we're sharing and we're about to share, I was not aware of just six years ago, five years ago, I got a little bit aware of it. And then five years ago, we created one for our friends and uh, for people to join us as, as collaborators. But, but just six years ago, I was working for a mega wealthy family, you know, exponentially able to, use their own capital for, for projects. So that's actually how I thought projects happened. And I think most of us naturally think that we, you know, you and I might be good at selling. We might be good at marketing. We might be good at one major skill set. We're the COO or whatever. And we've built financial resources for our families. And we think, well, yes, I do well for myself, but I could never do a big project like that. Or I could never own something like that. Um, um, you know, my my point is, I would have thought that too just just recently, and so it was a it was through a series of relationships, as Kara said, that I was open. My eyes were open to the fact that normal families, families that have income but that are not mega wealthy, um, have reserves, can actually meet a status that the government created called uh, uh, accredited. And once you're accredited uh, investor, which just means you have uh, several hundred thousand dollars of annual income, or you have a million dollars of total assets, that means you're allowed to invest in private deals that are syndicated by people like us. Now, you, everybody, no matter what your resources are, can buy the house next door and you could rent it out. Or you could buy, okay, so we all, let's start with investing for a second. Yeah. Today, it's about real estate. I'm a big believer in real estate. And let's just take one step back. Why real estate? Because real estate has stood the test of time. And they they talk about things like it's a re- inflation hedge. And this is your home as well, folks. You're, in real estate, the value of the real estate's going up, usually at at least the pace of inflation. And simultaneously, you're paying down the debt. And so, uh, and then of course, the government gives you tax incentives. Like if it's your own home and you make a certain amount of profit off it, you don't get taxed on a certain amount. So there's all kinds of reasons why real estate has just a base to some of your wealth, maybe not all of it, but to a base of some of your wealth. It makes sense on a lot of levels and maybe another show we can go into all those details. But uh, when you buy the house next door to yours, it's worth whatever your house is. They call that comparables. And so if it's maybe a little beat up, you can pay less than what your house is worth. You fix it up and then it's worth what your house is worth. 
That's how you make money with houses. And it's a great way to make money. Then you could rent it out and make a little check every month. Typically, you don't make much on that. But eventually, while you're making a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars a month, the house is maybe going up by 30,000 this year and 50,000 next year. So it's also, it's two things are happening, right? The monthly cash is helping you and then you're paying down the debt. And then the later it's worth more. All three of those things come together to make you money. Then there's a fourth one called tax and all these other things, but tax savings. But in commercial real estate, it's a little different. And I, I didn't realize this even as I was building those resorts for the partner. I still thought you pay something for the building, it's worth whatever the next door neighbor's building was worth. In commercial real estate, it's not exactly that way. It's actually however much cash flows through the property and stays as profit, that then gets factored into the value of the whole project. Mm -hmm. So for example, if a property was purchased for a million dollars, but eventually you increase the profitability of it, even if you don't change the building, actually, if you just do a better job running the building, it may be worth upward, upwards of 50% more or 100% more when going to get the next appraisal. Why? Because the appraisal says, here's what the real estate looks like physically. Here's how much it makes. And, and they put so much value on how much it makes that it can change the, the value of the building. They call it forced appreciation. So there's the physical fixing up of a building, and then there's the financial fixing up of the building. And what we do for investors is we buy tired old buildings, we fix them up physically, and then we overlay a bunch of cash on them, in income. Mm -hmm. And then that's called forced appreciation, and it changes, changes the building. And then you can borrow money against that. So I don't want to go too deep on that, but that's a little primer on how houses are valued differently than commercial buildings. And I'll use Renault as an example, if you'd still like me to, Kara. Yeah. So again, but like you closed your eyes in uh, Aust with the Austrian story and tried to picture the mountains are alive. Here you get to picture a tired 150 some, I think we bought it was 155 years old winery in New Jersey. You know, back then the East Coast was important for wine, obviously, because there was most of us lived here on the East Coast near New York <clears throat> back in the 1800s. Um, but it hadn't been fixed up since the 70s, and it was so awful, and it had a stankiness to it uh, and bad design ideas and and just really beat up. But we saw some value in it. We bought it for uh, $5 million. It was 200 and some acres. It had a golf course, a hotel, and a winery. I was enthralled by the name and the fact that the brand name had been around for 155 years. That's not normal, right? The, Picture how many companies exist in this country that haven't closed in 155 years. So I was enthralled by that, but I, I didn't know how to make money with that part of it. So I said, hold on, we'll make money. We'll make this place gorgeous. And I had done some research and I we all noticed, and many of us guessed it, but the research backed it, that weddings at wineries are very hot and very popular for about a decade plus and probably forever, but right now they're on a, a real tear. Mm -hmm. And so I said, why not just... Focus on the weddings first, get everybody paid, make sure I pay people money on their money, and then we'll worry about building out cool, cool things, including the wine, and we had visions for agro-tourism and high-end culinary experiences. We had all these visions, uh, and slowly but surely, uh, we were building out the wedding business, and Kara was getting these emails from us, oh, we sold hundreds of weddings, and it's way better than we thought. Obviously, construction's hard, but 
the the sales are happening while we're under construction. It looks like this is going to going to work. This is 2019, 2020. Yeah. And then yeah. in March 2020, we finally finished construction and the COVID shut us down. Um, and yeah. so that was a shocker. Yep. And but you know what? And you'll I'm sure you'll share more, but you created, you know, lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> <laughs> we did. And that was probably maybe, I mean, not one of the best things that could have happened, right? But in that happening, you were able to create and pivot into so many more, reinvent so many more ways to make income than you originally thought, right? That's true. And and um just Again, look it up while we're while we're talking if you want because it's a beautiful thing. It's a an enormous uh, uh, gift because we had had these dreams to build a culinary oasis, which takes years. By the way, we're still not all the way there. We want it to be something people, you know, kind of like Blackberry Farms and all these wonderful oases where you get there and your senses are overwhelmed. We we do it, but we Melanie and I have a dream to get two levels even deeper on that. But not every idea makes money right away. So we start with the things that make money first, get the cash flowing, get the people's salaries paid, get the investors paid. Then we can add the next vision on. So it, what, what happened that year was we said, what, what's going on? We're not allowed to do weddings. Um, ironically, we were still selling weddings during the COVID, which was a big positive indicator that we're on the right track, meaning brides were still allowed to come. Engaged couples came during the COVID wearing their masks. Wow. Legally, you could come to a hotel. I don't know why that was legal. You could come to a hotel and we could sell you a wedding in the hotel. And we couldn't serve you food or do anything, but we could sell you a wedding. And we sold hundreds during the COVID. And wow. all of a sudden we're like, this this is going to work. So we had like our peace of mind that we'd already sold hundreds. We had sold hundreds more. We were now up to like 450, 500 weddings sold since Which we Which also, it. just to set the stage, this isn't Florida. This isn't like where it's more, <laughs> like this is New Jersey. It was pretty restrictive. You know? Very restrictive. Yeah, and we were so. able, but that's where we just said, the only legal thing we could do was outdoor dining. So all of a sudden we're an outdoor dining mecca and we're like, we better do music because we, so then we did a stage and we were hiring more bands than anybody in the region. Cause you know, the casinos and all those places were closed. We're like killing it on the weekends with a thousand people coming to see music, have fire pits. And then the cold weather came and we ended up building a winter village, which by the way, was on our wish list. Eventually we were going to do that because Melanie and I used to live in the winter village capital of the world, Austria. And we're like, someday we got to do this the right way in America. And boom, it happened like right away because and that put us on the map. We were in the Wall Street Journal that first year, 2020. We were already on. I have it over my shoulder over there. Uh, we were on the map. We were on the news all the time. And boom, everybody was talking about Renault, all because COVID allowed us to show off our acreage and acres of outdoor dining. And uh, we followed all the rules and we won the, we won the day there. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think, and having just visited, so I invested in the property back in, when was that? 2019, 2019 maybe. Right. Um, but we actually didn't get there until just this past year. And it's really, I mean, incredible seeing the pictures of what it was before. And then what you've been able to do with the property is, is just incredible. And I think 
what I think is really cool about the model is, as you mentioned, when when people think about traditional investing in real estate, I think often we think of just the the singular, oh, I'm going to buy a townhome or I'll buy a you know detached home and I'll rent it out and I'll make passive income that way. But we often, our eyes aren't open or, or we're not exposed to these other ways that we can invest in real estate, receive tax benefits. Um, and also sometimes I think there's a misperception that you've got to invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to, to, to do, to, to do that. Right. So, and that's just not the case. There's different levels and and ways to make that work and invest in what you are creating, which I think is what's really special. Um, but anyway, yes, what you've been able to create there and hearing your talk about Austria uh, definitely, I can now see it. I can see you all see the little it, villages <laughs> and there's a little beautiful skating rink and it's really a winter wonderland, you know, and you've yes. got hot cocoa that they're serving out. And, and so as an investor, it's great to see, cause you've got all these different areas that are making money. Yes. Right. Um, and so I think what's again, really incredible about you and Melanie and really your whole team is that you're focused on, okay, how do we create incredible experience? I know that you and I have had another podcast uh, where we talked about the um, the client experience and how do you really kind of engage the senses as you talked about, like how do you create culture where the people that you hire are built in to want to do that for your guests, as you call everybody that's- um, That's right. Gone to any of your resorts and properties. Um, but then, you know, you're also creating incredible community with investors to be able to network and build relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, so I know we're we're coming up on time and this is, I feel like we could definitely do a part two <laughs> and get more into a lot of the things we talked about because I feel like we've just scratched the surface. But for anybody that wants to learn more about what sure. you all are doing, um, I know you've got a, a great podcast too, where you have um, talk about investing and you bring um, great entrepreneurs together. Um, but what are the best ways for people to learn more about your mission, to get involved in the investor community? Share with sure. Them. Well, it's an honor. Um, it's an honor to have you, Kara. And and um, yeah, we, we met through a relationship. So these podcasts are created and people like Kara and I who have shows, um, a lot of it is hard work up front, you know, meaning you don't know how many people get to enjoy your show originally and you put your heart out there and O'Care does such a great job of it. So this is your relationship, friends. You know, you're listening to Kara and I, and we're happy that you're part of our community right now. So this is how I met Kara too, though. No, back in the day, I got to meet Kara face to face at a, at a home, a home. Her friend invited us over and we had a conversation about what Melanie and I do. And a group of people got to know us one step at a time. And then eventually they became partners with us. Um, so the best way to reach us is there is a website. Feel free to check it out. There's no stress, no fess, no muss. Um, there's thousands of people that went on that website. Accountable, equity, two words, accountable, equity.com. Truly, it's a soft approach. You, you know, there's webinars, there's a podcast, as, as Kara mentioned. Um, there's events we do. Everything I just mentioned, you can do even if you've not invested. And then if you invest, um, I do think it's more rich. You get assets, but you also get uh, access to even more in the community. Um, and there's no cost other than being an investor. So 
accountableequity.com. Now, if you love podcasts and you want to hear more about, you know, I call it an audio mastermind, like what Kara's doing. That's what we do too, where we just try to have you learn from people that are doing things differently than you. Um, that's called capital hacking. And what we're trying to do is find efficient ways to put each other, you know, give each other value. And so those are the best ways to reach out to me. I It's an honor. Come visit. One of the resorts is actually not far from Kara. It's Kent Island Resort. And that's yes. also very pretty. You got to go check that one out. Yeah. And funny, um, that one, I think we we invested a little bit in that one as well. Um, and it's really been special to see, you know, anything that that you and your team have touched have really just transformed. Um, and I think that in particular, Count Allen Resort, wasn't that one of the few resorts where the town actually asked you if there was anything more you could do to the uh-huh. like? Um, because and normally you don't get such town no. support, right? We we <laughs> do get good. T- more, but... Typically they like us. Typically yeah, the towns like, like us you, because but... we take care of things. That that's a good thing. Yeah, but I think didn't they ask you to build more or something like that? Or do you, uh, there was they're some supportive. Story, but they're yeah. supportive. It's this town here in Renault. They're definitely eager to see us uh, build as well. Yeah. So uh, just bottom line, yeah, if you're um, in the D.C. metro and want a quick getaway, the Ken Island Resort is a great one. Um, and, you know, definitely check Josh out at accountableequity.com. We'll include all of that stuff in the show notes. But um, it has really been such a pleasure and an honor. Um, I learned so much when I talked to you and uh, just love the, like I said, just amazing human that you are because, um, you just have a, such a warmth about you. And I just really appreciate your willingness to share. Oh, God. Thank you so much for your kind words. It's, I don't know how I'll ever repay you. I feel the same about you and anybody that works with you, I'm sure feels it. It's, uh, you, you have great culture in your town, in your, uh, in your team as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. We'll talk thank soon. You. All right. Very good. Well, how do you, how do you do your production? So you have a, a third-party production group that'll take this? Yeah, so they'll take that. Um, and then they I do an intro. They don't do a ton of editing one way or the other. I mean, I used to do it myself, quite frankly. On... I can't believe you did that. <laughs> it was just on um GarageBand because it's really easy to do once you learn it. I mean, you just right. you know, it's pretty easy to cut. Um, but I don't do that anymore because it's just too much um to to do. <laughs> to take on. Um, so they, uh, produce it, they get all the cover art, all that. I think we have, um, I'll have to double check. I'm pretty sure I have your, um, bio and all that kind of stuff, but if I don't, I know I can reach out to Amalia and get anything we need there. Um, and then what we'll do is they'll send an email the day we go live just to give you a heads up so you can share it with your friends and all of that as well. Um, so yeah. So, um, thank you. Thank you, Kara. Have yeah. a wonderful day. Um, question for oh, you. I'm all I yours. do. I do feel like, and I know you might have a hard study. We're almost. No, I think I'm okay. But... Oh, four. I do at four. I do, but I have a few minutes. Okay. Um, number one. Uh, I I think we may want to do another. I mean, I feel like there's just more meat we could do if you wanted to schedule another Absolutely. podcast to like, sure. um, get more into. There's just a lot of different topics that we couldn't even dive into. Cause I wanted to make sure we capped it at around, you know, 45 minutes or less. So um, if you're open to that, I'll send another yes. link. Um, and 
I can think through some of what those might, maybe it's like a value, how do you evaluate different properties or what valuations, you know, go into it. I'm just thinking off the, yeah, we could also, or we could go more into the legacy asset investing or whatever. Yep. Or we could, we could uh, explain the way these funds work, how, how they work, why, how people find out about them, what other, what other ones exist, what, you know, how do you meet people like accountable equity? There are other ones out there. Mm-hmm. I think actually that would be a great um, one to talk about. Cause I, um, I think that, you know, that we've got, this is like almost part one. Then part two is, okay, how do you find these kind of groups? If yep. not, you all like, what kind of things do you look for when sure. you're evaluating, you know, things like that so that people, um, the average consumer knows what to look for. So I think that's a great idea. That'd be great. I will send that along. And then also, do you know of anybody else that you think would be yeah. like a good fit or somebody yeah, to reach out to? Uh, so, I mean, anybody I've recently had on my show. So I've, I had a stem cell. I mean, it depends on health. No, you don't want to go into health right now. You want to stay focused on real estate. So I had a self-storage person on. I don't know if they take sure. investments. They're very interesting yeah. though. Yeah. Um, uh, I definitely can introduce you to a wonderful lady uh, who runs a self-storage business. Um, you would like her a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to her name's Corrine. understand. Corinne, and, uh, Corinne, I think it is. And she's out of Philadelphia area too. Okay. Um, who else did I recently have? I'm on uh, a lot of shows with Whitney Sewell. That would be a good resource. Whitney Sewell owns the the show called The Real Estate Syndication Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, very big. There's another... See, he's not real estate, but his name's uh, MC Laubscher, Cashflow Ninja. He's an investor with you and I. Uh, his show is enormous, millions and millions of downloads. And, Actually, uh, yeah. And his, what was his name? MC. It's uh, He's from South Africa, so his name is very long. So he just uses two initials, MC. Okay. And his last name is Laubscher, L-A-U-B-S-C-H-E-R. He's okay. wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. His specialty, not only does he have, he's like a little bit like J.P. Sears. Not oh, yeah. as funny, but more like sovereign and freedom and that kind of stuff. So that's, mm-hmm. he does talk about that. But his investment strategies are really kind of, he's definitely knowledgeable. He's done almost a thousand shows on alternative investing. So he's, you can pick his brain. He has a book called The 21 Cashflow Secrets, which is 21 different cash flow investments you can do. Oh, cool. He mentions us twice in there, which is great. Um, that's awesome. He's really great. He's an investor with you and I. He's big. He's a big investor. He's put in every deal, I think. And, wow. And, um, he comes and sees us. He just did a show with me last week. Um, boy, he's so fun to listen to, too. He has all these like little teachings. His core skill is whole life insurance investment, using it to wow. make investments. Have you heard about this yet? Yes. Yeah. Overfunded yes. life insurance. Yeah. Really and, good. In fact, I, you know, I first got turned on to that maybe two years ago or a year. Yeah. Maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. Got really into it. But then like we bought the house and we've been doing all these things and spend your so, cash. Yeah. So I'm like, we need to build the money pot. Um, but that is definitely something. In fact, um, there's another, I think it's called wealth without wheel. Wall Street or something yep. like that. Joey Murray and do you know them? I don't know them, but it, he's like them. So he's okay. he, he's the one Melanie and I use. Okay. Um, and my philosophy on that, I'm a big believer in it. I don't. My goal is 
I love that it's kind of outside of government a little bit too, you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have hundreds of thousands of dollars in that. And the theory isn't that it's our biggest investment. Um, I like that you can pull the cash out if you need to. Mm-hmm. You know what he does? He puts his um, money where his mouth is. Whenever he invests with me, he sends money from his uh, life insurance policy. So I think that's what is interesting. So then you pay, I guess, the interest while you've had that taken out. You pay interest on it, but the idea is that you're getting higher interest and that's right. growing. So it's correct. Like you're making money. It's on- it's almost a mind bender, and I haven't even grabbed my head around it. So basically, if he's making five percent on the money there, paying five point five percent interest on it, he wants me to give him a yield of eight percent. You know, meaning a preference. So now, if I give him the eight percent back. He's made more money than the debt cost him. That's how he's thinking about it. Right. His life insurance is growing at 5%. Right. And my thing's growing twice, right? He's getting his preference payment and then the asset's growing. So he's like, he's using the same $100,000 twice. Right. And that, it's a mind bender. It's like, yes. I, I can't. So he, what he's got is two assets growing. Yeah, one's paying the debt of the other one, but- I yeah, it's hard to understand, but it definitely makes makes you feel better. I love it. So for Melanie and I, we haven't used any of the money. Yeah, we, we just feel good that it's like our last resort. <laughs> you know, it's like our last cause for that money is sitting over there. Right. No, because I've just been now that like we're through almost you know the house project is like almost done. I'm like, now I can start to think about some of these other things. And really, I mean, I should have been thinking about them while the house is going on, but you know, you just only have so much. So, um, you know, that's kind of the next. So I'd love to talk with him. So I, I think you, yeah. you and he will, first of all, you'll love the guy. He's got a couple kids. Uh, he was a professional rugby player. That's how he got to America. He's just very, very cool dude. Actually. Oh, He's cool. our age. Um, uh, just a wonderful person actually and he, he and his wife they love coming out here and, and they have a couple little kids i think like five to six is their oldest probably awesome um, and maybe littler so i'm gonna do an intro with him right this second awesome because i think he'll be a he'll open up a lot of other ideas you might want to interview too yeah uh, be great and then, and then I'll, I'll introduce you to Karen as well okay yeah that's great and then the whitney do you feel like she would be a good yeah. Well, that's a dude, actually. It's a gentleman's oh, okay. first name, Whitney. Okay. But he um he would be wonderful too. He's also a big investor with us and he owns one. I love it. So some of our investors have some of the biggest investing podcasts, period. I love it. Those that's two amazing. Both, both of them. Yeah. Scott. Hey, buddy. Hey there. I'm yeah. not I'm not going anywhere. Can you just sit on hold for just 30 seconds? I'm gonna get yeah. off another call. All right. Um, oh, sorry about that. So, I just realized like, oh, it's four or five. Sorry. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Uh, so yeah, MC Lobster, 6 million downloads on his show. Wow. And Whitney Sewell, 3 million. Isn't that great? And they're That's both amazing. investors with us. So our community is pretty cool, actually. I mean, really cool. Yeah. It's really That's amazing. Good. I'll introduce you to both of them. Okay? okay. That'd be amazing. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Loved being here with you today and would love to connect with you more over on Instagram. My handle is linked to the show notes, or you can just type in at Kara Chafin Donofrio. And I have something special for you as a free gift, my dynamic life journal. This special book has the power to really help you live a soul inspired life. Go to free gift from Easy to remember free gift from Until next time, beautiful people, 
sending all my love.